Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Congrats to Super Bowl champs, the Kansas City Chiefs, who broke their 50-year drought tonight, defeating the San Francisco 49ers, who were seeking their sixth Super Bowl ring. And uh, the final score, 31-20, to a remarkable comeback for the Chiefs. You may know him as the web producer for America's most popular overnight radio program, Coast to Coast AM, Lex Lonehood is also an accomplished writer, and his new book is called Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness, and Lex is standing by, and he'll stay with us for the full two hours. Uh, Incidentally, the February issue of my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, is just days away from being published, so if you haven't subscribed, better do that fast, or you'll have to wait till March. Just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and register your name and email address. It's that simple, and you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum for free every month in your in-mail box, and you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merch, T-shirts, phone cases, hoodies, tote bags, and more. Go to strangeplanet.ca and register, and do it right now. Uh, we are about to embark on a mind-expanding exploration of sleep disorders and unusual dream states, the scientific explanations, and the paranormal possibilities. The sleeping mind is a mysterious backdrop that science is just beginning to shed light on. It was only some 60 years ago that researchers discovered REM, the rapid eye movement cycle associated with dreams. In Nightmare Land, Lex travels into the eerie borderlands where the unconscious dreams and strange entities intermingle under the cover of night, revealing broader and hidden aspects of ourselves, from the savage and frightening to the astounding and sublime. Lex Lonehood Nover has been the web producer for Coast to Coast AM, America's most popular overnight radio show since 2002. His work is considered a valuable resource for anyone studying the paranormal, fringe science, and alternative theories. Hey, Lex, welcome aboard. How are you, my friend? Hey, Richard, I'm doing good. I always enjoy uh, working with you when you're hosting over at uh, Coast to Coast, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be on your show this evening. Oh, likewise. I'm just delighted to have you. It's, it's like uh, we're family, the Coast to Coast family. Right, right. How did you sleep last night? <laughs> Furtively. <laughs> well done, well done. You've had an interesting encounter, which actually predates your your coast-to-coast days. We'll get into that in in a minute. But as I mentioned in the introduction, it's only been 60 years. Hard to believe when scientists first sort of began to understand something that we now take, for example, rapid eye movement, REM sleep. What other big questions remain uh, regarding our sleep state that we really don't know much about? Well, I think one of the, the big outstanding questions that has not really been resolved is the purpose of dreaming. Uh, there's been different theories going back to antiquity. Freud certainly uh, captured the imagination of the public, and I think his ideas are somewhat out of vogue now. And there's, there's other theories, but in looking at it all, 
it just feels to me like none of it really completely answers the question, and it may it may be somewhat unanswerable. I think that um, medical researchers and scientists have some idea about the purpose of sleep overall and the different things that it, it does for the body and the brain. They've, they've been able to show that. But as far as the purpose of dreaming, it's still pretty mysterious. You begin the book with an examination of sleep paralysis, which to me has always been sort of the equivalent of swamp gas in, in ufology, where it's just this broad brush that's often used to dismiss so much of what goes on in what you call the borderland between the sleep state and, and wakefulness. Sleep paralysis. I'd like to begin the discussion with your own encounter with what may be a case of sleep paralysis, perhaps not. But but take us back to 1999, and you were listening to all things of Art Bell on Coast to Coast. Yeah, it was kind of a funny, ironic twist, given the uh, job I would end up having in a few short years and the popularity of that topic on the show over the years. But, yeah, I was an Art Bell fan in, in the 90s. It's kind of what ended up drawing me to this uh, career that I've had all these years. And uh, one night I was um, kind of laying in, in a loft bed and listening to the show, and then it, it went into a commercial. And the classic signs of sleep paralysis for people that don't know is your body is completely frozen and you can only move your eyes. And oftentimes what happens is you can start to see kind of a malevolent entity that starts to form in, in part of the, the bedroom, but you're actually looking out and seeing your, your regular bedroom, so you're, you're not in a dream. And so as Art had gone to commercial, and was, I remember he was a, this kind of innocuous commercial for C-Crane shortwave radios, and I was seeing this, this malevolent entity that formed in the corner of the room, kind of like um, like a spider's web, and this, this male figure was just looking at me like, like he wanted to kill me. It was just really um, terrifying. And, and as I mentioned, that my body was frozen, and this all happened within, in, I would say, probably under 30 seconds that, that I broke out of it. It's the kind of thing that can happen just as you're falling asleep, and, and more often when you're coming out of sleep, coming out of REM, the REM dream state. Right. And what you experience turns out to be pretty universal. It cuts across all cultures, and it goes by different names depending on the cultural lens. There actually turns out to be an interesting Canadian connection because in Newfoundland, uh, one of our fine provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador, they did a, a study on Old Hag. Tell me about that. Yeah, that actually was one of the big breakthroughs when uh, there's a sociologist who... Um, studied these old hag reports in Newfoundland, and in, in fact, it was kind of a shorthand that people used um, to, instead of just trying to describe what sleep paralysis was and the different stages that they go through, they would just say old hag, and people would know right away what they were talking about. And uh, Gifford really sort of put this on the map, and his research was one of the first to show that sleep paralysis happened to normal people and that it wasn't really a sign of any kind of psychological disorder. And previously, people uh, often thought that it, it was the sign of some kind of psychological pathology of some sort. 
So his work was really a breakthrough in that regard. But the the classic old hag is kind of a description of a, a female figure that that leans or sits on a person's chest. Right, and it goes by different names in different cultures. Old hag in in Newfoundland, and probably that came maybe from from Great Britain. Interesting name for it in Japan, kanashibari. What does that mean? Well, it actually means bound by metal. That's something that's also pretty well known in Japan. It's depicted in folk tales and uh, manga, uh, those comic comic books. Sometimes uh, it's portrayed as kind of like a magical power that monks use to immobilize people and animals. So it's actually pretty well known in Japan. How far back does it go, uh, depictions of whatever name it goes by, Old Hag or... In Zanzibar, it's called Batwing. How far back does it go in depictions in, let's say, art? Well, there was some thought, something I ran across, that it was even depicted in some of the cave paintings in a way. I guess it would be hard to determine if that's actually what, you know, it's very interpretive as to what you're looking at with with some of that material. But I, I do think it goes far back into antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans certainly knew about it and, and wrote about it. Back in those days, they, I think they attributed it to um, like kind of an indigestion type thing or eating overly rich foods. Right. It reminds me of that passage from Dickens' Christmas Carol when um, Ebenezer Scrooge tells the ghost of Jacob Marley, you may be a bit of undigested beef. There's more gravy in you than grave. So that's what he was alluding to, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because sleep paralysis, that's what people, when they said nightmare, up until about the 1800s, that was the term that was used to describe um, what we think of as sleep paralysis rather than how we define nightmare today, which are anxiety dreams that tend to wake a person up right, right out of the dream. I guess the scientists refer to REM as paradoxical sleep. So what do the scientists actually believe is happening when... Someone is having an experience like you had over 20 years ago while listening to Art Bell or someone else refers to his old hag or Batwing or Metal Bound or whatever they call it. Well, I think it, it's according to neurologists and, and people of that ilk, they would consider what's happening to be kind of a superimposition or an intrusion from it's like a leftover from the REM dream state that intrudes into the waking state. And there definitely is some logic behind that, because what's happening in, in REM is that the body is paralyzed, so you don't get up and start acting out your dreams. So it makes sense in that regard that there is, that there is some kind of mixed state. And that's actually kind of the running theme in my, in my book, is this idea of these mixed states of consciousness that combine different aspects of being asleep and awake, and and yet, I, I still kind of felt like that explanation didn't quite seem to match up to the experience and and the the utter terror and and oddness of seeing these these apparitions or demonic beings that that appear in in people's rooms. Um, there is a newer neurological explanation that I, I thought was interesting to consider. Uh, a, a scientist named. Uh, V.S. Ramachandran, who came up with this theory that what happens when someone is um, experiencing sleep paralysis, they can't feel their limbs, and so there's a part of the brain 
that that kind of uh, materializes this ghost image of a body, um, sort of like a phantom limb syndrome, and and that uh, seemed really interesting to consider. Uh, the fear and dread is one thing, but you raised the question uh, as to whether this can actually kill you, uh, sleep paralysis. Uh, tell me about sudden unexplained nocturnal death syndrome, and there was, um, I don't know, we won't call it an epidemic, but an incredibly high rate of incidence for, I believe, South Asian um, immigrants to the United States back in the 1980s. That's right. In fact, those those incidents are what inspired... Wes Craven to create the uh, Freddy Krueger character from Nightmare on Elm Street. He uh, read these accounts in in the L.A. Times. Uh, it really was kind of a little mini epidemic. These young uh, immigrants from Southeast Asia were were dying at a, a rather unusual rate because they were young and healthy men, and people couldn't really figure out what was going on, other that they they were you know kind of found screaming or something just uh, frozen in their beds and and they had died of um of something like a heart attack and so it was a real uh medical mystery and it wasn't really until years later that uh some research was done um by Shelley Adler who uncovered that they these young men might have had this uh, thing called Brugada syndrome, which is like a hidden heart defect, and in combination with something they call the nocebo effect, which is kind of like the dark twin of the placebo effect, that was what was, was doing them in. And it was all sort of related to seeing these entities in sleep paralysis because their traditional belief system uh, from Asia was that if they, they didn't keep their old traditions, some some of them that involved animal sacrifice, that they could be visited by these entities. And so that's kind of what happened when they moved to America. They were dropping away from these old traditions, and then when they would have these sleep paralysis episodes, they would interpret that as being kind of this retribution for um, falling away from from their their old um, traditions. Fascinating. So a perfect storm, a, a, a heart defect coupled with some cultural beliefs uh, and an episode of sleep paralysis all come together and produce unexplained uh, death syndrome. Yeah. yeah. Rem- remarkable. Lex Lonehood Nover is uh, with us. You may know him as the web producer on Coast to Coast AM, and his new book is Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and wakefulness. How much credence do you give to the non-scientific or the non-prosaic explanation for old hag uh, or these other incidents? Uh, for example, you, you talk about an astral hypothesis. Let's let's delve into that for a few moments. Sure. Yeah, I don't think it can entirely be ruled out. In fact, some people have exp- have described experiences where they wake up from sleep and there's an entity that's already on top of them, kind of, of like feeding on their energy, and the entity is described as as being surprised that they're kind of caught in the act, that they thought the person that was sound asleep and wouldn't really see them there. So it strikes me that it could be possible that when we're in these certain states of consciousness, these kind of mixtures of being awake and asleep, we might be tuning in 
to some sort of astral realm or something that we wouldn't normally have access to when we're awake. So it, it's something that, that's really interesting to consider. Um, I don't know that um, you, could, you could prove something like that, but um, it, it, it's interesting to ponder. What, what is your belief on it, Richard? Well, I, I've stated you know, on the radio um, many times that I do believe in an unseen realm. Uh, I, I believe in interdimensional entities. So then the question becomes, is the sleep paralysis somehow opening a portal uh, to these dimensions? Is it simply a neurobiological? Is it a combination of both? Is it the, is it the interdimensional entities that are causing the sleep paralysis? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I guess, scrabbling around in the dark like everyone else. Uh, right, right. I, 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 I don't know, but I am, I am certainly open uh, to the, well, as you, as you describe in the book, the astral hypothesis. Yeah, and, and one thing that surprised me just in general and delving into this topic and uh, talking to people about it of just how many strange stories and experiences that people have, I think that it's sort of a, a lot of it's kept hidden by people. They don't want to <laughs> seem like they're crazy or whatever, but it seemed like almost everyone that I talked to, if it wasn't sleep paralysis, it was some other strange experience that they had. So it seems like a real uh, hornet's nest of uh strange things going on. We're heading into a break uh, in a couple minutes, but before we get to the break, we'll start the conversation, carry it on afterwards. Uh, to what extent in your research did you find a connection between uh, sleep paralysis uh, and um, certain folkloric uh, creatures, whether we're talking about vampires, Nesferatu, uh, uh, shadow people, uh, witches, incubus, succubus, and so forth? Well, well, certainly the incubus succubus are kind of like the classic representations of of uh, sleep paralysis that have that um, kind of supernatural aspect. And it struck me that a lot of the whole um, witch persecution thing might have been related to that because they were coming up with this these theories of how um, the witches would have communion with with these. Um, demonic figures, and it, it seemed to relate to some of the descriptions of, of sleep paralysis. So it made me wonder if if some of that was, if even like these um, heads of the church had sleep paralysis experiences themselves and saw these strange entities and took that as proof that, oh, the devil does exist after all, and we've got to do something about it. And, and things like the vampire, I think that's another uh, kind of classic case where you can see parallels to sleep paralysis in terms of um, people being uh, frozen and unable to move and a, a, a kind of evil figure that's feeding, literally feeding on the person, which is similar to what happens with some of these entities. All right, Lex, uh, stay put. We'll roll into a, a break here. On the other side, we'll uh, talk about maybe a connection between uh, sleep paralysis and out-of-body experiences. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll learn about your, uh, your good friend of 25 years, Jimmy, and his extraordinary experiences. Lex Lonehood Nover. Nightmareland travels at the borders of sleep, dreams, and wakefulness right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. 
take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. From a coast-to-coast AM insider, a mind-expanding exploration of sleep disorders and unusual dream states, the scientific explanations and the paranormal possibilities. Here's a nice little uh, blurb on the back from our dear friend, the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley. An excellent exploration of the darker side of the dreamscape, a must-have book. And uh, from my uh, our colleague at Coast to Coast, George Knapp, a potent mix of modern media reports and bone-chilling lore worthy of John Keel and the Brothers Grimm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the connection, Lex, between uh, sleep paralysis and... Things like out-of-body experiences, uh, astral travel, uh, even uh, Edgar Casey, the great Edgar Casey, often described as the sleeping prophet. The idea of remote viewing in that in that hypnagogic state. Uh, talk to me about that a little bit. I know that's a, a big a big mouthful to chew on, but uh, let's begin that discussion. Well, I think if, if you were to view sleep paralysis as, as having some positive aspects, the whole idea that you could kind of piggyback into an out-of-body or astral travel would, would certainly be um, one thing that you could, you could say about the experience because uh, there is some literature and reports where people are able to, to do just that or convert it into a lucid dream, which is um, entering the dream state, in this case, while realizing that you're in a dream so I think if you can get past the the scariness and the whole frightful aspect of of not being able to move your body, that you could actually have uh, more of a um, a positive experience. And uh, and it, it is interesting that that these realms seem seem somewhat connected in that. Um, this idea that, like you were bringing up about Edgar Casey, I, I guess I would consider what he does to be more in that hypnagogic state, which is considered right before you fall asleep or just after you wake up, which really does seem to be kind of a gateway to sigh and communications with the dead and, and all sorts of things. So um, I would categorize that kind of stuff in, in a slightly different vein than sleep paralysis, although it seems like that could be the jumping-off point for, um, for those kind of experiences. Tell me about your, uh, your old friend Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, he would fall into that category that I was mentioning of people kind of coming out of the woodwork with, with their uh, tails. And in his case... I knew he had uh, a long-term fascination with uh, with the occult, but when I was telling him that I was writing this book and especially focusing on sleep paralysis, he started telling me, he goes, yeah, I, I had those experiences heavily for like 25 years, and I just thought it was funny that he had never mentioned that in all the time that I knew him. And um, he started having sleep paralysis when he was like 11 years old, and um, it really kind of came to a head when he was a medical student. And, you know, as you know, they don't get much sleep. They have to do these really long shifts at the hospital and just kind of catch a little shut-eye here and there. And, and he was just having, you know, nonstop um, 
uh, all these various entities, some of them he said were kind of like these menacing rubber doll creatures and these like Lovecraftian reptiles that were like cold as ice. And so he, he tried a bunch of different new age methods, kind of trying to reason or, you know, engage these tormentors and, and nothing, nothing really seemed to work. And so finally one night this gargoyle like hag descended upon him while he was in a paralyzed state and he managed to shift into a lucid dream like i was mentioning before so as the hag pushed him down he he suddenly had this like moment of clarity and instead of trying to get away from her he did the opposite he pulled the hag closer and and to the shock of the creature he ripped into her chest tore out her heart and ate it Oh, so my. I was I kind of joke oh, in the book. Well, that's that's one trick they don't they don't <laughs> teach you in medical school. But uh, that technique actually worked. It seemed to I don't know if you'd call it shamanic or, or something seemed to transpire. And after that, the um, sleep paralysis episodes faded away and rarely occurred to him again. I would guess that word would get round pretty quick in the old hag community that leave Jimmy alone <laughs> because he'll rip your chest cavity open and eat your heart. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, a lot of the the typical advice with um, nightmares and facing your monsters is to reason with them and, and try this sort of friendly approach. So it um, it's it's funny that uh, sometimes the 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 more effective thing is is to actually be be violent with with these uh, entities. Right, That's fight back. The language they understand. Sure, fight back. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the alien abduction phenomenon, and because there are obvious parallels here, and and not to you know explain the entire phenomenon away with sleep paralysis. But what did your research tell you uh, about uh, the possible connection? You know, I, I wanted to include that in the book, Richard, because there was a period in, in the 90s when uh, a couple of uh, prominent psychologists um, came out and basically tried to uh, write off the whole alien abduction thing, particularly the bedroom encounters, and just saying, well, it's, it's really just mistaken uh, sleep paralysis, and people all kind of know about these, these reports of the Greys, and they're all kind of jumping on this bandwagon. And it, it struck me that, yeah, some some cases could could involve that, but the the, the sheer repetitiveness of the descriptions of those uh, creatures with the wraparound eyes and the you know kind of egg heads and the spinely bodies, and then the examinations aboard the ship and the hybrid babies, all of that, it just didn't really jibe with what I understood about the way people typically experience sleep paralysis. And by that, I mean not everyone's demon is kind of like their own. I think it's a very idiosyncratic experience. So the idea that everyone would be seeing this exact same thing, that just didn't really make sense to me. So um, I wondered if, if it was something where, 
Um, because I don't, it, it seems far-fetched, this idea like, oh, there's a UFO in someone's backyard and they're just <laughs> kind of coming through the walls into the bedroom. But it, it does, it, maybe it ties in more with what we were talking about before of um, kind of like astral or interdimensional entities that are, are using this the same kind of methodology or gateway to, um, to, to reach out to people or people just becoming aware of these other kinds of experiences because they're in a different brain state. Lex Lonehood Nover, my guest. The book is Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Demons, or sorry, uh, Dreams. <laughs> yes, there are demons involved as well. And Wakefulness. And uh, just a reminder that we will uh, open up the phone lines at the top of the hour and take questions and comments. Uh, I would be particularly interested in hearing about uh, your strange experiences between, uh, you know, the wakefulness uh, and uh, and uh, the dream state. Uh, I just want to cr- uh, crib here from Chapter 2 uh, briefly and, and then get into a discussion about uh, parasomnia. And uh, because as you write here that, that uh, sleep paralysis is, is just one of what you call a hornet's nest of conditions categorized as parasomnia. Although it's understood that there are just three primary states of being awake, uh, sorry, of being awake, REM dreaming, and deep sleep, each with their corresponding brave brainwave patterns, their parasomnias point toward a more porous mental model. When there's a hiccup in the system, the borders of these three states, again, awake, REM dreaming, and deep sleep, the borders of these three states can bleed or blend into each other, creating hybrids. And uh, with that, uh, about 75 clinical sleep disorders. Uh, just give us kind of a, a quick sampling or a laundry list of some of the, the strange sleep disorders that you address in the book. Well, first of all, just to define parasomnia, those are uh, physical or emotional uh, abnormal occurrences that accompany uh, sleep or dreaming. Some of the classic things that everybody knows about are uh, sleepwalking, um, uh, sleep talking, there's sleep eating, there's sleep sex. So some of these are, are kind of involve uh, multiple aspects, like if you're sleep eating, you're also sleepwalking. And there's some other fairly strange ones. There's something called REM behavior disorder, and you can almost look at that as kind of like uh, like sleep paralysis, but viewed through uh, like a carnival uh, funhouse mirror, because in, in that condition, it, instead of being uh, paralyzed when you wake up, you're still in the dream state, but your body is not paralyzed, and so these people are thrashing around and acting out their dreams. And typically people that have that syndrome have these very violent dreams, so their bed partners are, are in danger of, of being attacked. It's, it's really quite frightening, and, and this is a case where it, it's helpful for people to, to get diagnosed at sleep clinics because they have uh, some medications and things that can, can kind of control it. But in, in one case with this um, man who had... Uh, that REM behavior disorder, he was in a dream where he, he uh, saw this like skunk get into his tent. And so he was kind of in this struggle with the, get the skunk out of the tent. <laughs> and so he was like dragging this skunk out of the tent. And then meanwhile, his wife, he was pulling in, in, in the waking state, his wife was like screaming because he was pulling on her long hair. Oh dear. So somehow he had kind of 
blended the the waking reality of her long hair superimposed with the with the skunk. Unbelievable. Listen, we'll take a quick time out. Lex, come back and uh, discuss more. The Somnambulant Society. When the Conspiracy Show returns, stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. Before we get back to my conversation with Lex Lonehood-Nover, the author of Nightmareland, just a quick programming note. Next week on this transmission, Marcus Allen will be with us. He's the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. Many of you are familiar with uh, Nexus. It deals with news and information that's, well, overlooked, unreported, or ignored by the mainstream media, um, hidden history, future science, alternative health, conspiracies, UFOs, and we'll be talking about the lunar landing hoax. And Marcus always comes equipped with uh, some pretty in-depth analysis and, uh, I think, some pretty credible evidence that the at least the photographs of the lunar uh, landing may have been staged. All right, let's talk about sleepwalking and sleep talking some more. Uh, Lex, a quick story. I have a my middle older sister has been a sleepwalker all her life. I remember hearing stories of her getting out of her crib, walking into the kitchen with her her blanket and uh, dropping it in the gar- garbage and then going back into her crib. She was completely asleep, and this has continued on now into her uh, adult life. She's uh, um, 60, and, uh, you know, I, I'll hear these crazy stories from my brother-in-law about finding my sister in the cl- closet uh, in the middle of the night, sort of battling with the coat hangers and things like that. Uh, how much of this, because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, if this is a symptom of sort of modern living, because sleep deprivation and sleep disorders seem to be Almost epidemic. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a connection with modern living. Well, there, that's a possibility. I think certainly things like insomnia, which are super common, uh, you, I think you could chalk that up to the way we live. W- one little tidbit of, of research that I ran across that um, is kind of related just in terms of the way we sleep was that prior to the advent of electric lighting, people actually used to sleep in two shifts. Uh, so it was, you would sleep for one period, I guess sometime after nightfall, and then people would get up for an hour or so, kind of read by candlelight or uh, just have various activities, and then go back for their second sleep. And so the whole idea of getting in your eight hours in, in one one big batch is is somewhat of a modern contrivance and with experiments where people kind of have gone down to like a cave or some area that's completely dark they do actually revert back into that uh, pattern of this kind of bifurcated period of, of sleep so um, so just in terms of modern living I think maybe this whole notion that we're supposed to sleep for eight hours does does relate to some of the various uh, disorders and, and experiences that people have. Fascinating. In, in regard to sleepwalking, um, it's thought to be pretty common in kids. They often grow out of it, I guess, uh, not so much <laughs> in the case of your sister. And the other thing is it does tend to run in families. There seem to be kind of a, a genetic component to it. 
uh, this friend of mine told me this this story that I recount in the book that uh, is actually kind of kind of amusing. If it wasn't so much to him, he was uh, kind of horrified when it happened. But when he was a kid um, back in New Jersey, and they lived in a split level home, and his parents were going through a divorce, and so as kind of uh, as a treat for uh, for my friend, his mom would let him stay up and watch Johnny Carson with her. And so one night they were down watching the TV, and all of a sudden his identical twin sisters, they were um, a few years younger than him, they both appeared at the top of the stairs, kind of arm in arm, and then they start coming down the stairs together with those glassy, glassy-eyed stairs. They were, they were sleepwalking together, oh, and no. he, he had never seen it. The mom was kind of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, she was sort of used to it. But to him, it was like a, that scene out of The Shining right, right. with those twins. Oh, my Lord. Uh, true or false, you should never wake someone while they're sleepwalking. You know, th- that I think is one of those traditional beliefs, the idea that, um, that your, your soul um, could, could be lost if, if you were suddenly awakened, that you're, um, that you're kind of traveling uh, out of the body when you're, when you're asleep. I think the part of it that maybe has some truth to it is that you, you don't want to startle a sleepwalker. You kind of just want to just sort of gently guide them. Uh, back back to bed uh, as they they could get kind of disturbed and right. then there's this whole thing of night terrors which is um, you could consider that kind of a subset of sleepwalking but that is when people are having these these really frightful nightmares and they're just uh, running around uh, in absolute terror and sometimes they have like superhuman strength where they're able to like you know shove a big TV that they normally wouldn't even be able to move in their waking state and what's what's really curious about about night terrors and some of the other um uh parasomnias is that they occur in non-REM or this this slow wave sleep or deep sleep it's called and that was a kind of a revelation to me because I thought you know during REM that's when we have our dreams but actually there's this content that's going on in the mind during non-REM sleep, and we usually have almost no memory of that. So that seemed like another one of those really uh, mysteries of like, okay, what, <laughs> what is going on then? You know, it, it sort of speaks to the question of, well, what's going on in the mind of a sleepwalker? They do have some content that's, that's going on there. Right. Uh, as you point out in the book, getting back to sleepwalking for a moment, maybe we'll, we'll talk about this on the other side. We'll, uh, we're, we're heading into a break here, but... Uh, Sleepwalking in uh, northern climes, like where I'm sitting tonight, uh, can be most dangerous, as uh, as we'll discuss. Uh, Lex Lonehood, Lex Lonehood Nover, uh, is the author of Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. And uh, as we uh, head into the uh, top of the hour, you can also uh, get your fingers moving and uh, call into the program. We'll give you those numbers. We'll roll those numbers in a few moments. And I would love to hear... Your uh, your tales of sleepwalking, uh, sleep talking, and uh, other encounters, eerie encounters perhaps, in the borders of sleep, dreams, and wakefulness, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, before we get back to sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep murder, I <laughs> uh, just want to dip into the mailbag very briefly. I don't know how uh, this got misplaced in the mail, but I just uh, I wanted to mention to uh, Lorraine and Matt, who sent me a Christmas card. Uh, I don't know, but maybe they're Eastern Orthodox uh, or Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox. Uh, anyway, uh, dear Richard... Um, we're big fans. Listen whenever possible. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Also enjoy when you fill in uh, for George Norrie. Best wishes, Lorraine and Matt. Well, thank you so much for that. And um, a little bit later, I'll uh, read a couple of nice cards and letters. All right, back to uh, Lex Lonehood Nover, and the book is Nightmare Land. Uh, incidentally, how do we get a hold of this fine book, Lex? Well, thanks for asking. It's available on Amazon, uh, some booksellers, uh, bricks-and-mortar stores like uh, Barnes & Noble carry it. Um, you can get it on IndieBound and uh, a variety of places online. Um, the audiobook I uh, recommend as well if you're into that sort of thing. I got to help in the casting of the narrator and this uh uh, actor Neil Helligers really does a bang-up job with it. He's got kind of this uh, Rod Serling-like voice that really uh, kind of gives the whole thing a very entertaining and uh, mysterious uh, twist. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, this would be very conducive to an audio book. Uh, perhaps people can help them uh, drift off, or, or yeah, not. <laughs> it's kind of not maybe this sort of thing <laughs> you want to listen to as you're falling asleep, but... Uh, um, I want to, for other occasions, perhaps. Sure, sure. I, I mentioned earlier about uh, the the perils of uh, sleepwalking in northern climes. Tell me about this uh, gentleman in Minneapolis. Well, that was a case where um, uh, a man woke up uh, sleeping um, next to his wife, and uh, he was in some distress, and the wife felt like a wetness in the bed, and she she pulled back the covers. And the man's toes all had like frostbite on them, and and you know initially she was just perplexed as to what what had happened. You know, amidst you know they were calling for an ambulance because it was a fairly serious situation. And what they pieced together was that he had gotten up, and um, in in his state of sleepwalking, he thought he was walking the dog. And because the wife was able to see, to trace his footsteps in the snow, because he was walking barefoot in the snow on the exact same route that they walked their dog. But in this case, the dog was <laughs> safely and, and warming, warmly sleeping at home. So he had he had just gotten right back into bed after after this whole sleepwalking episode. My word. Uh, yeah, and in some in some cases, people are uncertain whether it's suicide or not because they'll find uh, a body like the next morning curled up in a snowbank and oh. it's only, you know, if they can piece together that um, someone was no- a known sleepwalker that that, that becomes the, um, the suspected thing that uh, caused their death rather than just allowing themselves to freeze to death. How, el- how elaborate uh, or what kind of complex activities can people uh, do while they're asleep can they drive yes yes they can in some in one case someone was said to fly a helicopter 
uh, yeah, the one of the the sleep murder cases that I uh, investigate in the book, uh, actually in in your home country there, um, uh, Kenneth Parks was uh, said to drive 14 miles to his in-laws' apartment. So uh, the whole state of sleepwalking is is very curious because what's happening is the person is using their eyes to be able to see, and um, a lot of the motor functions of the body are, are obviously operating if they're, they're walking around, but certain key aspects of the brain are still asleep. The things that govern logic and rational thought, for instance, in, in the neocortex area. So, so someone could be using their eyes to see and drive a car, but they might not recognize someone that's extremely close to them they wouldn't wouldn't even know who they were so it's it is really this strange hybrid state fascinating we have a program on this radio station called midnight blue uh, that airs weeknights uh, at 12 a.m. at midnight of course <laughs> uh and uh, so you have a a, ch- a chapter uh sort of alluding to midnight blue and that has to do with uh, people who get rather amorous but while they're asleep talk to me about Sleep sex. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. It's actually the more clinical name is sexomnia. And again, this is probably something that's been going on since time immemorial, but it wasn't until 2014 that it became an official um, diagnosis as, as a sleep disorder in, in sleep disorder clinics. Uh, a lot of times people enjoy it, and it's not something that <laughs> that's a problem. There, there was one case that I profiled in the book where um, a woman's partner um, was she she kind of wasn't sure if he was asleep or not, you know, because he he seemed kind of robotic and and very uh, amorous, if you will. And so at one point, right in in the middle of uh, of their having sex, he started snoring. So it's kind of this uh, this phrase came up of the the so-called snorgasm, <laughs> but. Um, but the the idea that you know when she caught him in the act of snoring while having sex that was like the clue that okay he is definitely asleep but one of the um curiosities about it is in a lot of the cases people the the awake partner would report that their um their sleeping uh sex partner was actually better they were a better partner when they were asleep than they were when they were awake you know, possibly because they were less inhibited and just, um, you know, were willing to kind of explore different things. Right. We're, we're heading into the top of the hour, and I do want to talk about uh, people who have committed horrible crimes and used the defense that they were uh, asleep. But in this particular case, sexomnia, has anyone ever used that in a defense, let's say, for example, when the, the sexual encounter was uh, unwanted? Yeah, yeah, that it is. It's come up in a, a number of court cases, and it, you know, it's a controversial thing to be able to to prove one way or the other. It's even come up in the reverse, where someone has accused another person of, you know, sexual impropriety, and they were the ones that had had come on to them while they were in their sleep. So there's a lot of different uh, permutations and, and complications, and for someone that that has that. As an issue, they really do need to be careful because they could they could get themselves into trouble and do things that they would regret. How would you prove something like that that that, that you were actually asleep? 
It, it would be very difficult. I mean, it would be, um, in the case of these sleep crimes like murder, what they do in the defense is try to show a history of a person having um, various parasomnias. There's a machine called a polysomnogram that is used to detect uh, abnormalities in a person's sleep. Um, this whole thing with sleepwalking and sleep sex and sleep eating it's it's what is considered to have a lower arousal threshold. So in other words, someone is more prone to wake up, like if an airplane is flying by, that, that that's enough to wake them up into this partial state of awakening. So in these court cases, I think a lot of it is, is kind of getting sleep experts to demonstrate that the person did have uh, various abnormalities. All right, we will open up the phone lines and questions and comments and again would love to hear about your strange experiences somewhere in the borders of sleep, dreams and wakefulness and if you're a sleepwalker, a sleep talker, if you've had other strange experiences, my name is Richard Serrett, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a minute. 